You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 33 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson. On the 16th of August 2017, over 100 tax professionals met in Sydney to discuss the most urgent pain points in the Australian tax system. The event, called The Great Debate, was conceived and designed by Bob Deutsch, the Tax Institute's senior tax counsel. I met with Bob to better understand the issues discussed. Here's Bob. The Great Debate. Yes. How did it come about? Who had the idea? Well, it was my idea to create what I hope will become an annual event where we talk about difficult and not so difficult concepts of taxation and how we might do it differently, how we might do it better, how we might do it um, more consistently with how other countries might approach some of these issues. So it's intended to be annual, but whether we can deliver that is a different question because we need a lot of dedicated resources for it. So that's the idea. Was it difficult to get the tax profession together to...? No, it wasn't difficult. It was surprisingly easy. Um, we found a lot of people who were interested, wanted to participate and had lots of ideas to put it together. So we, we had a great deal of enthusiasm from a lot of people. How does this debate cut across to the um, Board of Taxation? Because I can imagine the Board of Taxation also has a lot of discussion. Yes, the Board, the board of Taxation was actually involved in this debate. We had uh, a couple of representatives from there both moderating and arguing particular positions. So they've had some involvement with this and we're very keen to continue that involvement. Um, we don't really cut across anything they're trying to do, but ours, they're really working to deliver certain outcomes um, for government. Um, we, on the other hand, are flagging possible issues. So we're not necessarily delivering on any decided policy, but we are certainly encouraging government to think more broadly about policy issues and how things might be done in the future. Mm. So could it be that this great debate was more like a brainstorming yes. session yes. where ideas were bounced around? Absolutely. And, and I, mm. I put forward the the broad idea in each area, but then it was for the people to argue whatever proposition they thought would, would work well. Mm. And I assume they believed in what they were arguing. Was it like a debating at school where you um, were given the pro or the con? And well, that's, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I, what, what I usually did was that I would put forward a proposition. So to give it some context, an example might be Australia's residency rules are too complicated. We need a simpler formula. Yes, I agree with that. And then I would ask for... Then I would usually ring somebody who I know has done a lot of work on that and ask them whether they would wish to be a debater on that topic and would they wish to be for it or against it. Yes. So I'd give them the opportunity to decide. Inevitably, you would get somebody who might say, well, I'd like to do it, but I'd like to argue the side that's already taken. So <laughs> I'd have to ask them whether they'd be prepared to argue the opposite proposition, and some of them were, which obviously means that 
It's much harder for them. It's more difficult for them, and perhaps the flaw is that they're not as passionate about the proposition that they're arguing for. Mm. Um, and that probably came through. But inevitably that is going to happen mm. when you try to put together something like this. Yeah, because I can imagine some points, like the residency rules, yes. I can imagine it would be very difficult to find a tax professional who would argue <laughs> you know, to keep it as is. Forever. Well, we, we did. We, mm. we had somebody who was prepared to argue that, and mm. it was more about keeping it as it is and not going down some of the paths that other countries have gone okay. down. Or maybe more mm. along the lines of don't fix something that isn't yes, broken. Yes, 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 mm. exactly. That, that could be the, the, the position that was taken. It works good yes. enough. Yes, it mm. works well enough. Leave, leave it alone if it's not broken. Yeah. That sort of mm. philosophy, yes. Did you list those eight topics? And yes, then... I came up with all the topics mm -hmm. myself and put them together as what I thought was a coherent whole which represented the critical pressure points within the Australian tax system. So I knew that we had to have something on GST. I knew that we had to have something on superannuation because they're two areas where there is a lot going on. You see a lot of debate and a lot of argument about complexity, about difficulty in practical application, all those sort of things. And then obviously in income tax, there's a whole host of areas where you can argue for a different way of doing things. Were there so many um, points that it was difficult to decide which points you wanted to... It was more along the lines of having too many points and trying to pick the ones that we were going to run with rather than we're scratching around trying to find what to talk about. Yeah. There wasn't much of the latter. But that's um, good. I mean, yeah, no, you know, it that, is good. It means there it's was good. a reason for yes. this debate. Yes, mm. absolutely. And I think, you know, next year, or well, sorry, we're in this year. Mm. This year, 2018. Which, yes, 2018, we'll probably pick slightly different topics to sort of tease out some other things that are going mm. on in the tax system. Has what was discussed created a tiny ripple in the uh, pond? I think, I think it has. It depends on which area you look at. But, you know, one of our topics that I've already alluded to is superannuation, in particular how complicated superannuation is. That certainly resonated with government. I think they're understanding that they need to work with formulas in developing legislation which are a little simpler um, conceptually so that they can be translated into a legislative framework that is perhaps realistic for what's needed. So I think there has been some impact. I wouldn't did, the, say did government representatives actually attend the, uh, the Great Debate? Yes, oh, yes. Okay. We had, I didn't realise. I thought had, it was just the tax no, bodies no, no, and the no, tax no. profession. It was open, oh, open to anybody well. who was willing to oh, pay the... that's a good the, initiative on their side. Yes, there were quite a few representatives there from the tax office. There were quite a number of people from Treasury. So, yes, we had a good cross-section. Yeah, so it would have been, um, I can't remember exactly the number that we had, but it was over 100 people there from memory, and it was probably about 50% um, advisors and people gen genuinely interested in tax policy, and the other half would have been Treasury, Tax Office, um, public servants, um, a wide cross-section of them. But it was by invitation only? No, no, you could apply as well, um, but there was certainly a large number of invitations sent out, but if somebody came from the public who wanted to attend, they certainly could have. Can we go through the eight points that were discussed? Can you still remember the... Okay, well, the, f the first issue that we looked at was the concept of the CGT event 
which has, in my view, completely got out of hand in terms of the way the legislation is constructed. So we now have something in the order of 54 separate CGT events, which when you think about the concept, concept fundamentally is about somebody who holds an asset and they dispose of it, and they dispose of it for more than they, what they bought it for. That's what a capital gain is meant to be about. We have constructed around that 54 different events to deal with that simple concept. Now, to my mind, that is somewhat absurd, and we had people debate, one representative from the tax office debate with a representative who, as I recall, was an academic, about whether that was a good idea or a poor idea, and if it's a poor idea, what would be a better way of dealing with that? And essentially what was put in that paper, the person who argued in favour of removing the 54 CGT event classifications and substituting it with one coherent conceptual concept was that it could be done in a straightforward way, leaving a lot of the legwork to the judiciary for judges to make decisions about exactly how it would apply in practice. And that was, in fact, the position where we were at when CGT started. So we seem to have moved away from that fundamental concept. So it was a good debate, a very um, open debate, and one that generated a lot of discussion, a lot of interest. And I think at the start there was even some confusion about how many CGT there events was, there, there actually was. are. Because there I was. think originally you had written a, a lower number and yes. then... It yes, actually that's came right. out that there's no, more than right. you even thought. Yeah, mm. there were there were fifty four and I think I'd written something more along the lines of thirty five or something. Yes. Yeah, I, yeah, I can't yeah. remember exactly now. Mm. Yes. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so that was a, a a very interesting debate that um led to a lot of fertile discussion about whether or not realistically we could move away from that CGT event concept or idea. Mm. And so the general feel in the in the audience was we should simplify it. I would say so. I think mm. that would have been the general consensus. There was some concern about leaving too much to the judges, the judges, and not having enough in black letter law. And that's always the tension that you get in these situations because there is a clear tension between putting everything down and having it black and white like that as opposed mm. to cover, leaving... covering every possibility. Covering every possibility. Mm. And that can lead to a lot of um, overdoing of mm. the legislation. On the other hand, if you don't do that, mm. you get practitioners saying, well, we don't know what the answer is. It's not very good to say, well, you'll get the answer when we go to court because that's expensive and time-consuming and... Mm. Not everybody wants to go to court. Yeah, and also un unsure. You know, you don't know which way the court will Well, that's decide. right. That's right. So you've got the litigation risk as well. So it's always been a tension in the law as to how much you put down as black letter law and how much you leave. I think we've overcooked it with the CGT events. There's mm. no doubt about that in mm. my view. We've, we've overdone the amount we're putting down as black letter law. Um, there has to be... A better compromise there. The next topic we looked at was the removal of essentially work-related expenses and substituting it with a standard deduction, for example, 
a $1,000 amount. You know, the exact amount would be a matter of negotiation. This generated a lot of debate and a lot of publicity in the media at the time. This is one where I think um, there is likely to be some action during the course of the next two to three years. I think it is an area that the government is looking at quite seriously. Um, I don't know whether people picked up on the Commissioner's comment that the level of work-related expense deductions was greater than... Sorry, the, the, the level of work-related expense deductions that were disallowed, I think it was, was greater than the amount of tax avoided by the multinationals. Now, if that's true, that gives you some idea of what we're grappling with. Mm. The difference, of course, is that the work-related expenses are all small or tend to be small amounts. It's just that when you add them all up, it's a very big amount. Mm. Commissioners very keen to get this area more under control and the difficulty is that you've got these very small amounts that the Commissioner doesn't really want to chase because I don't think he's particularly interested in chasing down a $300 deduction that shouldn't have been made as a claim. Mm. Um, nonetheless, he can't say, I'm going to ignore all that because the number at a macro level is very big. Now, the difficulty is that when you allow a standard deduction, you're really saying to people that if you're genuinely involved in work where you genuinely have large work-related expenses, we're not going to let you claim them. You're only going to be able to claim $1,000 or whatever is the standard deduction. Now, there is a way we can deal with that, and the suggestion that I've put forward is that you allow a standard tax deduction of, let's say, $1,000, or you can claim a greater amount, but then you will be put to a much higher level of proof. So if you have a $3,000 work-related expense deduction and you think it's legitimate, by all means you're entitled to claim it. But the tax office will be asking for better particulars about that claim mm. and you'll be put to a higher level of proof about that claim. Mm. Now, I think that would take away a lot of the angst about people not being able to claim greater deductions because we're saying you can just put to a higher level of proof. Um, at the same time, it will deal with a lot of the claims that are coming through where you're just going to say to people, you claim $1,000, go away, don't, don't mm. fret about all your receipts. You don't have mm. to. Mm. You're entitled to claim that amount. I would be very happy if this came through for two reasons. One mm. is it puts tax agents into a very difficult position when the client tells you, yes, I use the computer 95% for work purposes, it's impossible to say, Absolutely. are you sure, 95%? That's yes. a very high number. It's related with a lot of work, you know, all these tiny expenses. Yes, absolutely. Yes, but the, the other area, you mentioned computers, the other area where you see a lot of this is with mobile phones. And, you know, if I say, and this, is, this has happened to me personally, where I've said, my agent has said to me, What percentage do you use your mobile phone for private purposes? Well, you know, that's a real guess. I mean, um, I, I, at the moment I don't have any claims of this nature, but I did at one stage during my working career, and I can't remember how much we claimed, but 
there was no independent basis that could really be used to verify that in a way that would be satisfactory uh, upon an audit. And I can imagine most people would overestimate the business use of the fund. Yes, I think they probably would. And that's why this would get away from that problem. And again, if you want to claim a larger amount because of very high usage of your computer, you could do that. Mm. But you'd then be really tested about that claim. Mm. And I think that would be a fair way of dealing with mm. that problem. It puts tax agent into a very difficult position. So, for example, I had a client and she wanted to claim 4,000 kilometers of work and travel. I explained to her that travel from home to work and back is not deductible, yes. but she wanted to deduct it anyway. I didn't want to do that. So I lost, the, lost client. the client. It just puts tax agent into a very difficult yes, position. Yes, absolutely. And, and it also means that those tax agents that, who are willing to bend the rules and push the envelope are going to do for the short term at least much better and that mm. that shouldn't be the way the the system unfolds but mm. regrettably that's what has happened mm. to a large extent but you know there is a lot of anxiety about this there are a lot of agents who are not in favor of any standardized deduction so mm. i think the government is treading very carefully here and i think they've got to be cautious about it But I think I'll be surprised if we don't see some movement in this area in the next few years. It's happened in New Zealand and it's happened in the UK. And I think tax agents are wary about this point because they feel that this is where they can make a difference. Well, that's, that's true. So I think that we need to, as an institution, we need to work carefully and work in conjunction with tax agents to try and get the best outcome. The next topic is the question of residency and whether we can simplify the residency rules for both companies and individuals. So essentially, this again comes down to this question of do we want strict black letter law in this regard or do we want something that is more grey? And in Australia, we've tended to compromise on this with our residency rules. So if you look at the corporate residency rules, We basically ask three questions. Where is the company incorporated? Which is a simple black and white test. If it's incorporated in Australia, it's resident here. If it's not, it's not resident here. But then we go into questions about where does it carry on business and where does it have its central management and control, which are much more controversial topics because even the question of carrying on business can raise complex issues. We have various common law tests, but they're not particularly clear in their application in every practical instance. In central management and control, we've heard a lot about that recently for a variety of reasons, but it also raises questions, particularly in the virtual world, when you've got meetings that can be held mm-hmm. via Skype video link, Skype, um, all sorts of methods of holding meetings where people are not face-to-face. And these rules were designed really at a time when meetings were held face-to-face. So it's become a, a complex area where we are looking in the debate at questions like, could we move to a straightforward test of incorporation, which is largely what they use in the United States. So in the U.S., If you've got a company incorporated in a U.S. state, it's a resident of the United States, and if it's not, it's not a resident. 
Now, that creates a very clear and unambiguous outcome. The problem is that when you do that, you create a very simple way of avoiding the US tax jurisdiction by incorporating outside the United States. And then you put an awful lot of pressure on what we call the, the CFC rules, rules the mm. Controlled Foreign Company Rules, to try and bring some of that, what is now offshore income, back into the local jurisdiction. So again, there is a very high level of tension in these rules between straightforward black letter law versus vaguer concepts that perhaps give more um, room for government to argue that a company is nonetheless a resident of Australia even though it's incorporated outside. Um, so we had a very robust debate around that. We also had a very robust debate around the individual residency rules, which are even more vague, because there we have some clear um, lines in the sand. For example, presence in Australia for more than 183 days is a pretty clear line, but even that has some issues around it. Um, but then beyond that, we get into questions of where is the taxpayer domiciled, which is not always an easy question to resolve. And then finally we get down to general matters of residence at common law, which basically means we look at all sorts of issues like does the taxpayer hold an Australian passport? Is the taxpayer an Australian citizen? Does the taxpayer have private health insurance? Is the taxpayer a member of a local golf club? All these sort of issues come into it. And I think it's... Um, I think we've reached a point, particularly on individual residency, where we do need to have some clearer rules, some clearer um, guidelines. I call them guidelines, but really I want them as statutory rules that will give people a bit more certainty. I think we are in a position now where individual residency is too uncertain for the good of the nation, and we need to move away from that. But that was the subject of the debate um, on that particular mm. point. And I think the general consensus was that we need some clearer rules. But I'm not sure I'd be willing to sort of say how many people thought that. But it was certainly, I think, the, the broad consensus amongst the, the tax people that were there. Mm. Do you think it would be easier to change the individual rules than the uh, corporate residency rules? Because with the corporate residency rules, you then get all the CFC rules, mm. you know, mail, everything. It's a big, it's a big yes. pot. Whereas with individuals, I think my gut feeling it would be much easier to. Just I, I think change you're probably right. I think you're probably right. But we would have lots of arguments about how we're going to change it and what we're going to change it to. The one path we should not follow is what the UK have done. The UK have gone absolutely berserk with some very strange legislation that runs for pages and pages and pages that counts up the number of days that people are in the United Kingdom and the number of days they are outside. And it's just, uh, in my view, a very silly way of trying to deal with... Mm. And why did they spend... Why did they write pages and I pages don't. on it? it sounds, it, to me, it sounds like a very clear rule. You're either in the country no, or out. Well, they haven't made it clear at all. It's, oh, okay. uh, I've seen it. I haven't read it from beginning to end, but I've read enough of it to know that it's not the path that we want to follow. Oh, OK. Um, I think what we need is something that is a bit more along the lines of what America has, where America looks at 
days of presence, but it also looks at whether or not you hold a green card, so whether you've got certain entitlements to work, and I think that's the sort of formula that I think we need to be looking at in Australia. Something that tests your presence, physical presence, but also looks at something that is more objective, like whether you have perhaps entitlements to work in Australia, um, and if you do, you should be treated perhaps as a resident. But we need to think that through more clearly. Oh, okay. So you're not in favour of just a just a simple 183 day rule, no. but something. No, I think I think we need. I, I think we need to look. I, I, I would be looking towards the US as a model for determining whether or not somebody's a resident. They seem to have far less problems, certainly far less cases than we do on that vexed issue. We do have quite a few cases here, and I don't think it's necessary. But the reason that we also have so many cases is because our individual tax rates are so high. Well, that's true as well, but that's a slightly different topic that mm. um, yeah. we didn't really get into in the, in the great debate. Mm. The next topic was this question of the CGT discount and negative gearing. And this is a very hot and topical debating point at the moment. And highly politically charged. Very politically charged because I don't know whether everybody is aware of this, but Labor is proposing if they are elected at the next federal election, which will be held either late this year or early next year, they will be proposing to do two things. One is to remove the possibility of negative gearing on all property other than newly constructed property. So you will not be able to negatively gear any longer if Labor is elected um, anything but newly constructed property. That's first. Second, and this is the second is actually more straightforward, if I recall correctly, they are going to halve the CGT discount. So currently the CGT discount is 50%. They will reduce it to 25%. Now, those two moves would be um, very politically important because the coalition, the current government, have indicated that they will do neither of those things. They have the coalition, that is, have taken some steps in the last budget to diminish the attractiveness of negative gearing by um, limiting certain things like um, deductibility of expenses to get to fly to your travel negatively expenses. travel expenses to get to your negatively geared property for whatever reason. But again, that's fairly narrow and fairly limited. It has had some impact. The Labor Party proposal is much broader. Now, my view, for what it's worth, is that negative gearing and dealing with negative gearing is quite a difficult task. I think Labor may be underestimating how complex the legislation that delivers that outcome is likely to be. And I also think it will be quite distortionary because it will give a different market for newly constructed property as opposed to all other property, because you're actually embedding into the system a different tax outcome. So you will certainly depress the prices of older properties and potentially increase the prices of newly built properties. Now, that may be a deliberate part of the policy, but it will be an outcome that will be very bad for a lot of people. So I think 
Labor's going to have to think very hard about that, and the legislation that we've seen done before will be quite complex. The much more straightforward proposal, and one that I actually endorse, but I know a lot of our members don't, is the halving of the CGT discount. I personally, and I speak now personally rather than as necessarily the representative of the Tax Institute, have always found it a bit odd that we have a 50% CGT discount. Um, it seems way too generous to me. It was always meant to substitute for a, a simple substitute for indexation. But if you look at rates of inflation over the last 10 years, it's way more on any understanding than rates of inflation would suggest. So I would have thought that pegging it back to 25% is a very reasonable um, idea and it could be done at the stroke of a pen, unlike the prohibition on negative gearing. Mm. Um, now, I'm not sure whether I could tell you that there was a consensus at the, great at the great debate. Certainly there is a lot of argument about the merits of prohibiting negative gearing. Um, and I'm not sure that I could tell you that there was a consensus. I would say that there was a broader consensus that the CGT discount is perhaps too generous. But how exactly we deal with that, I'm not sure that everybody would agree with Labor's proposal, but I certainly think that, the, that Labor's proposal is quite fair and quite reasonable. Mm. Why would it be so much more difficult to remove or reduce negative gearing than the CGT discount? I mean, I, I can imagine it would just be a sentence in the legislation, and I know that sounds very naive. Well, it's not that straightforward because you would need to work out what's rent and what's deductible against rent. So are we only talking about interest expenses? What about discounts? What about other expenses that are associated with holding the property? So we, when we last tried this, which was back in 1987, 86, somewhere around there, I remember it was Paul Keating was the treasurer, um, the legislation was actually quite difficult and It required a lot of reading and understanding of the legislative formulation, but it comes back a little bit to what we talked about before. How much detail do you want in it? And do you want some flexibility left in there for the judges to make interpretations? So it'll be a little bit along those lines. But there could be a compromise area there where we have some legislation that is perhaps not as um, turgid as the one that we had in 1987. Perhaps it's more... And principle based, but I fear that the way Australian legislation evolves, it's going to end up being quite complicated. Mm. Um, it certainly won't be a sentence. Mm. <laughs> it, it might be um, a very, very long paragraph, but it won't be a sentence. Yes, yes, Pro probably nothing is a sentence. No, <laughs> very little. Text. Very little. But mind you, the CGT discount. It's a matter of saying 25% instead of 50%. Yeah. It's, it's yes. not a big deal. Yeah. It's what I would describe in legislative terms as the low-hanging fruit. It's the thing that you can do overnight, yeah. provided that you get the support through Parliament, but you can do it overnight in terms of the amendment. The negative gearing process is more complex. I can imagine in the great debate, tax professionals would have been very much against any changes to the CGT discount or the negative gearing because that's where most clients 
are sitting. Yeah, look, that, that's true. I, I am talking from the point of view of the nation and what I think is best for Australia, which, you know, I readily accept that I have to speak for our membership and certainly our membership, there would be a large cohort that would view um, any change to negative gearing or the CGT discount negatively. Um, so, you know, I'm very conscious of that. But nonetheless, I have to say that, you know, if, if, if I was looking at this from the perspective of what's best for Australia, I can't really defend the CGT discount at the level where it currently sits. It's just overly generous and it distorts the market because it gives too much of a leg up for those who have the financial wherewithal to have capital assets versus those who don't. Um, and I don't think that's right. So the next topic is imputation and whether we should move away from imputation. Um, I I'm very much sit on the fence on this topic personally. Um, I think that imputation, ever since it's been in, I think it came in in 1987 from memory or somewhere around there, um, it has been a tremendous system for Australia in that it's done a lot for the capital markets and it's certainly encouraged very heavy investment in the share market. Um, whether that is still the case and whether we should preserve that system is an interesting question. Um, the downside from my point of view with imputation generally is that it tends to discourage companies from holding profits back for further investment. That, it seems to me, is the main problem because most companies that pay tax would are in a position where they want to distribute their after-tax profits so that their shareholders can take advantage of the franking credits. Now, that can be done through a share buyback as well, which many companies have participated in, and that's, that's usually, that, that, that in outcome is much the same thing. But it means that a lot of these companies are not retaining profits and using it for reinvestment, which I think is problematic. It's not always problematic, but in many instances, it becomes a bit of a dilemma for the country. So if you look at our major mining companies, they have probably failed to withhold a sufficient amount for further investment or future investment into their mines, etc., and I think that's largely driven by an imputation system that says we reward companies that fully distribute their profits. So I think there's a bit of an argument there. Imputation is also, quite frankly, adding considerable complexity to the system. And trying to explain what imputation means to lay people is quite a difficult process. And that's why we've ended up really, um, apart from Australia and New Zealand, nobody else really has an imputation system. Yeah. The UK still has elements of it, but Singapore has moved right away from it and all the other developed economies have Yeah, I was really surprised when I heard that different. the US doesn't have an imputation credit. No, no, I no. just assumed everybody did it. No, no, no. The US has a classical system of taxation with some 
um, dividend exemptions to try and get away from the problem of double taxation. But no, very few countries. Really, Australia's the only country, Australia and New Zealand are really the only countries which have what I would call almost pure imputation systems. The UK has moved well away from it. It's not what I would call a pure imputation system any longer. Singapore has completely abandoned it. Singapore moved some years ago away from imputation to a dividend exemption system where they simply say you pay tax at the corporate level and then any dividends that are paid out are tax-free in the hands of the shareholders to avoid double tax. Now, of course, we couldn't do that. <laughs> we couldn't have such a system because our corporate tax rate is 30% or 27.5% or 25%, whichever way you want to describe it now, as opposed to our personal tax rates, which are up at 45 So we couldn't have a system where we say we only tax at the company level and dividends are tax-free, there would be an outcry that that's giving too big a free kick to wealthy people who are getting dividends. So that was a very interesting debate, but one, as opposed to the standard work deduction, I suspect we won't see any real change to imputation in the next five to ten years. I think we've got that system and there's no real appetite for change there, but it's something that we look at occasionally. Without an imputation system, companies probably would need to change their structure or go for grouping to yes. avoid double taxation within the group. Well, it depends. depends on what we substitute for imputation. So if you went along the path of Singapore, um, you'd have to get your personal tax rates and your company tax rate more in alignment to be able to do that. But that would mean that shareholders would not be disadvantaged. They wouldn't get double taxed. They'd get taxed at the company level and that would be the end of it. Um, but as I say, that's not realistic right now for Australia whilst our, whilst our personal and company rates remain so fundamentally apart. But there's other models that could be looked at, um, but none of them are entirely satisfactory. But I have to say, none of them are quite as complex as the imputation system. Imputation is, is complicated. Okay, so the next topic was uh, GST and whether we could change the tax base of GST. The reason I included this as a topic for discussion is that there's been a lot of media attention around the GST rate of 10% with a lot of people suggesting we increase it to 15%. And that seems to be politically unacceptable at the moment. There's no real appetite either from the coalition or from Labor to really advocate for such a change. And I think politically it would be quite difficult and quite dangerous to go down that path. What I'm suggesting is that rather than going down the path of changing the rate, serious consideration could be given to changing the base. And the base, of course, is driven by, to a large extent, what is classified as GST-free. And there are a whole host of things that are GST-free. The most important of them for immediate purposes are basic food, education, health and exports are the main areas that 
give rise to GST free. Now, there's a lot more. There's about 16 or 17 different classes of GST free items. But if you look in dollar terms, those four would be the most important. And what I'm suggesting is that we could give serious consideration to whether we should continue to treat basic food, education and health on a GST-free basis. And this was really what the topic was for debate. Um, Part of the reason that we did that, we gave those GST-free classifications, well, the main reason was that it was the only political way that John Howard, who was the Prime Minister at the time, could get it through the Senate. And he did a final deal with um, a lady by the name of Meg Lees, who was leading the Democrats at the time, and that's how he got the whole package through. The policy reason why we exclude basic goods, education and health is because it's seen to be fairer for lower-paid persons. So lower-paid or the low-income parts of our society would spend a far higher proportion of their income, for example, on basic food than would somebody higher up um, chain, chain, the food chain, so to speak. (laughs) So that's the policy reason. And I simply question, and this was the reason I put it in there, whether that could be dealt with by eliminating those GST-free classifications because, quite frankly, somebody who is earning $300,000 should not be buying their broccoli GST-free. I see no justification for that. So the person who is in the unfortunate position of sitting with $10,000 income and buying his his or her broccoli can be compensated for that cost outside the tax system. But let's not have the tax system subsidise that by giving GST-free broccoli, I use that just as an example, to somebody earning $300,000. Equally, why should education for somebody earning $300,000 be GST-free? It doesn't seem to me to be the right policy outcome or policy solution, I should say, for the particular problem that we've identified. If we have people who are on low incomes that need compensation, they should be compensated. But let's not compensate them through the tax system by giving everybody a tax break on things like that. So that was the view that I had, but obviously there was a lot of debate at the Great Debate about that particular topic. The next topic that we looked at was superannuation and whether it could, it could be simplified. Now, I've had quite a lot to say about this. I will continue to say things about it because I'm very firmly of the belief, again, this is a personal view, that superannuation is for superannuation and should be for nothing else. I really don't like the idea of limited recourse borrowings within super. I think the idea of gearing super is just crazy. It's not meant to be for that sort of thing. You're not meant to be leveraging super, which basically means borrowing against it with borrowings against your super. It's not about providing a housing subsidy 
for first home buyers. It shouldn't be about that. All those things should be dealt with if they are particular problems outside of superannuation. If you want to give first home buyers a leg up, by all means give them a leg up, but why it's done through the superannuation system, I have no idea. If you want to allow people to leverage, by all means let them do that, but again, not against their superannuation funds. I also don't see any real reason why we should be using super to allow individuals to downsize. Again, if you want to encourage them, do that through giving them stamp duty concessions if you wish to, but I wouldn't be using the superannuation system for achieving that outcome. Now, having said all that, I also think that we need a relatively simple and straightforward superannuation framework. I think people are getting tired of the complexities that are being raised by successive federal governments, and for this I don't just blame the current federal government. It's been going on for, well, ever since we've had superannuation. The concept is straightforward. It should be 9.5% as we currently have it, contribution for employees which they accumulate over the life of their working career and the balance should be available to them tax-free once they get to a certain age, whether that be 60 or 65 or whatever it is. The only thing that I would change at the end is that you shouldn't be able to use it all up in one hit. Um, I don't believe that a lump sum extraction of superannuation is appropriate. It should be um, allowed to be withdrawn over a period of time on a tax-free basis. But all that could be done in a far simpler context than the one that we've currently got. I just think it's too complicated. It has too many difficult concepts that underpin it. And we need to be cleverer and smarter about superannuation and make it more simple and thereby more accessible to the average Australian. And the lump sum withdrawal links to another article you wrote in TaxLine where you ran through a few examples that showed that a couple or a single person mm. who withdraws their super in a big lump yes. sum and then goes and splashes it, it then qualifies for the Absolutely. pension, yes. whereas somebody who is frugal and just withdraws mm. a little bit from their super then doesn't yes. qualify for yes. the pension. That's, that's exactly what I'm alluding to when I say that I don't agree. I, I was a little bit shorter than I perhaps should have been when I said that um, they shouldn't be allowed to withdraw their lump sum. The concern always is that they withdraw the lump sum They then go and, as you say, flippantly uh, dissipate those funds through overseas trips or whatever, extending the family home, all those sort of things, and then come back and age, uh, claim the age pension in circumstances where they really could have held on to a large part of that money and used it more prudently. And the example that I gave some time ago in Taxvine is that comparison between couples where one um, diligently holds on to their money and the other one doesn't. And, of course, the one that doesn't ends up better off because they get onto the age pension. And that, to my way of thinking, just shouldn't be allowed to happen, which is why I don't think lump sum um, withdrawals on a tax-free basis should really be allowed. It needs to be um, used appropriately for pension purposes, if at all, if at all possible. How should we simplify super? 
my first thoughts are A, get rid of the preservation age because I find the preservation age adds a lot of confusion because mm. the age changes all the time. Yes, it is confusing. And, and the other thought that comes to mind is TRIS. The, the difference between TRIS and ABP and whether you can convert a TRIS directly to an ABP. Yes. And Look, I, I agree. I agree. And I think that um, we've got to move away from these acronyms that are just they're useful. To somebody they're, who doesn't they're, they're useful for those who are inside the tent. Mm. But anybody who's outside the tent, they just get terrified by these things. And it just creates a system where you say, well, or at least not so much you say, but people feel they're excluded. They're not within that super area because they don't understand it. And understanding and being able to um, readily explain something like this is fundamentally important when we want everybody to try to provide for their own superannuation. And all we're doing is we're discouraging the very people who ultimately are going to need it more than anybody else. And I think that's a terrible thing. The last topic is the staple securities or staple structures and whether the tax advantages that remain with those sort of arrangements, whether they should be preserved. Just to explain the background to this, stapled securities involve investors who buy a security in a company and, for example, a security in an accompanying trust where those two securities are stapled together in the sense that they cannot be sold separately. So you can't sell your interest in your company but keep your interest in the trust. You either sell the lot you keep the lot. What happens is that the company earns certain types of income, but it undertakes as part of a prearranged agreement to pass on a large part of that income to the trust. And that's because the trust is the holder of certain passive assets. So they get a return from the company on those passive assets. That income can then be funneled out to the holders of the trust security. The payment made by the company to the trust is deductible to the company at the company tax rate, so that's 30% in most instances, 27.5% perhaps these days, but nonetheless it's fully deductible, so there's no tax paid on that income in the company. It goes to the trust and then the trust pays out that income to its sh to its uh, unit, holders. unit holders. Now, the trust is normally classified as, or is often, not, not, all, not invariably, but is often classified as a managed investment trust, and therefore the money goes out at a tax-advantaged rate to the investors, which for withholding tax purposes can mean that the rates are very low. So they can be as low as 0% in some instances, but um, certainly 
not more than 15%. And that probably depends on the different double taxation It will also depend on the relevant double taxation agreements. And that's why it's not always a managed investment trust. Sometimes it can be going out to a company, to a company which is resident in a location with which we have a double tax agreement and a very favourable withholding tax rate. Now, that's why it can work more effectively because if you held it just in the company, the company would pay tax at 30%. There'd be no deduction. Then the money would go out to the investors, but it's already had the 30% taken out. The advantage of the stapled security arrangement is that you get that deduction out of the company and then it can flow out in a tax advantage way to the investors. Thanks to the lower withholding tax rates. Thanks to the lower withholding tax rates as well. But you've already got the deduction out of the company on top of that. So there's a, there's a win-win there in terms of tax. Now, uh, the debate discussed whether these types of arrangements should be preserved. Um, this is an area where there will be action very soon. The government has been promising this for some time and I know that they are looking to have a formula established. Formula is probably the wrong word, but some sort of proposal as to what type of industries or what type of activities can be involved in stapled security arrangements. And it's got a history of being in the area of agriculture and certain related areas, but where it will go, we're not really sure. But the debate had two very competent people, one of whom is a practitioner heavily involved in the area, um, the other an academic who discussed the merits and the detriments of stapled securities and why um, they are useful or not useful and why they should be or shouldn't be removed. Mm. Um, because Australia but, is the only country in the world that has stapled securities, I think. Well, Australia is probably the only country that has stapled security arrangements of this kind, um, but most countries will look to provide some sort of facility for a lot of infrastructure projects to use a system or a structure that is not dissimilar in outcome. It might be dissimilar in terms of its structure, but it's not dissimilar in the outcome. Mm -hmm. So whilst you're quite right, I think we are the only country that has that allows this type of arrangement. Other countries do other things to try and accommodate the same, um, the, the same sort of final result. Mm. You said before the government promised that there will be some action in this area soon. Who did they promise it to? Who is um, pushing for change here? Well, I think the government is, is actually looking to change the arrangements or at least is looking to have some broader legislative statement about where this is going very soon. Um, so when I say they're pushing for it, it's the government that actually mm. needs to because do it. Because they see a lot of tax erosion yes. through these structures. Yes, yes. tax erosion and, and perhaps um, what they would see as improper use of these arrangements. Mm. Because Now they then, were meant for heavy industry or yes, agriculture. Yes, yes. I was just about to mm. say, you know, the question is what's the proper use? Mm. And the answer, I think, is in terms of infrastructure and other areas where we see large capital needs and you want to give good tax outcomes to particularly foreign investors to encourage them to come in. That's the sort of area where the government, I think, wants to preserve this type of arrangement but not to allow it to go broader than that.
In um, March of 2017, the government re released a consultation paper on stapled securities. And in that paper, they indicated that they were carrying out a consultation with a view to examining policy options to modernise Australia's taxation regime so as to remove tax dis distortions that may be identified. They've got a whole section here, international approaches to stapled securities. So with the exception of a few listed staples in Singapore and Hong Kong, the use of stapled structures outside Australia is uncommon. But then they tell you what they did in the US, UK and Canada and they introduced legislation to try and do the same sort of thing. It's complicated. It's, it's, it's complicated and very specific. You got a lot of tax minds together. You could yes. talk at a very high level. You didn't have to explain yes. basic concept, etc. I, yes, I can I imagine it must have been nice to be together with like-minded yes, brains. Some, some, some people would say with like-minded boring people, <laughs> but uh, I don't necessarily view it that way, but some people would. Neither do I. Yeah. But uh, no, it was, it was an interesting day and had a lot of... Um, interesting tax people there who had very different ideas about how things might be done. Mm. So, uh, no, it was a fun day, but uh, I would do it slightly differently in future. Mm. But what would always... you do differently next time? I, I, th I think we didn't make it controversial enough, so I think we need to get people to argue more about their positions rather than state them without any sort of counter from the other side. So I think I would try to do it a little bit differently if if we get the opportunity. It's all going to come down to resources yeah. as to what opportunities we have to do it, but yeah. certainly we're planning it. Welcome back. So these were the issues discussed in the very first Great Debate in 2017. I'm curious to see what will be discussed next time in 2019. I put my money on the uh, tax treatment of discretionary trusts, especially family trusts. In the next episode, episode 34, Kevin O'Hara of TechWitty will talk about the R&D tax incentive. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.